0: I'd like you to open with me this morning to two places, Genesis chapter 23 as we continue our series in Genesis. But also I would like you to look at uh, uh, Mark's gospel chapter 12, Mark's gospel chapter 12. Uh, This morning as we continue in our... Our study of Genesis. We're going to come to a funeral. It's a memorial service. It's a funeral for Sarah. But before we do that, I would like us to spend a little bit of time listening to what Jesus has to say about these things. Mark chapter twelve, verses twenty six. Well, let's see. Let's back up to Mark chapter one, verse one. No. Let's begin in verse 18. Um, in, among the Jewish people, there was a difference of opinion as to what happens when a person dies. And of course, Jesus takes death completely in stride. In fact, he came here for the express purpose of dealing with it. And so when the, the Sadducees came to him and argued with him about it, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death or at least not resurrection life. They didn't believe in the resurrection and um, Jesus takes them to task about it. Because the number one question among human beings is, what happens when I die? Why do I have to die? What is this thing about death? And so the topic came up. Begin in chapter 12 of Mark, beginning in verse 18. The Sadducees came to him, and they say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question. They said, teacher, and now they put this really ridiculous story out there. Uh, to get to try to trick Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow um, and raise up offspring for his brother. Leverate marriage, this is called. And it is. It's in the law. And the reason was so that uh, the property would not be lost that belonged to the family, so that a, a child, a, a man, would be raised up. to to oversee the property that was the purpose to keep the inheritance going and he said and they said so there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and when he died he left no offspring and the second took her and died leaving no offspring the third likewise and the seven all seven the seven left no offspring and last of all the woman also died and I thought well praise the Lord (laughs) you know this poor woman it didn't really happen of course It's it's just this fanciful story they tell. So now comes the question. In the resurrection, when they rise again... Now, they don't believe in this, but they knew Jesus taught it. They knew that Jesus agreed with, actually, the Pharisees and with historic Judaism, that there is a resurrection, and there is life after death. So they said, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be... 7 had her as a wife. So they're making an assumption that marriage goes into the next age, which it does not. And Jesus makes this clear. Now, look at how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Whoa. You know, they, you would think they would learn to stop asking Jesus dumb questions. Is this not... This is why you guys are wrong. Um. Do you ever wonder about all the reasons we might be wrong about stuff where we find out we disagreed with God? Uh, Dallas Willard pointed out years ago in one of his talks, I can't remember if it was a talk or a book, but he said, consider reality what you found when you discovered you were wrong about something. Jesus says to them, this is why you're wrong. And these are religious leaders, the Sadducees, and they ran the, they ran the temple, basically. Most of the priests were Sadducees. The Pharisees were the guys in the synagogues out in the hinterland. The Pharisees, I mean, the Sadducees were the priestly class. He says, you guys are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And by the way, these two things go together. To know the power of God means you have to pay attention to the scriptures. you're not paying attention to the Scriptures. He expected them to go back into the Bible and read it and glean some truth about ultimate reality from it. He expected this. And they had not done it. They weren't well known for this, actually. They were known for doing the priesthood. They were known for doing the temple stuff. They were not known for going to the Scriptures. And he said, because of this, you don't understand the power of God. By the way, it's quite common for people to be religious and not pay any attention to the Bible. And this causes all kinds of wrongness in uh, religious activity. He says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You're not trusting God for life after death. That's what he says to them. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They are like the angels in heaven, meaning they don't have a marriage relationship. But sometimes people say, look at this and they say, well, that means there's no male and female. It doesn't say that. God created male and female. He said it was good the way it was. You're going to be really who you are in the resurrection. But somehow the relationships change in that in that environment in a way that's hard for us to imagine. But he says it, it isn't the way it is in this age about marriage. And some people read this and they go, oh. And some people read this and go, ah. (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to go into the differences between those two responses when people see this. And as for the dead... Oh, by the way, it says, uh, like angels in heaven. It doesn't mean you become an angel. That's another misunderstanding in this passage that people have. Oh, you're going to be just like angels. No, you're still humans. You're resurrected humans. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. They each have their own order of creation. Humans will always have a physical body. It will be a resurrected body, but you will always be recognizably you. And you do not become an angel when you die. You hear this constantly. And even it's in greeting cards and stuff. Terrible theology in some greeting cards. Um, So just notice what he's saying here. Now verse 26. As for the dead being raised, have you not read? He expects us to read. (laughs) Read. Or at least hear it on audible. But take it in. Have you not read? You know, Jesus says this several times whenever he gets in an argument with the Pharisees too. Um, he said, have you not read? Pay attention to the word of God. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Of course, this is Exodus. And the book of Moses is the Pentateuch. The first five books. Um, the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, to Moses. You guys should have read this. You know this story. You should have gleaned from it something important. You ever try to glean something important when you're reading the Bible? You should. God spoke to him and he said this, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Haven't you read that he said this to Moses? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In case they miss the point, he continues, you are quite wrong, he says to the Sadducees. You are quite wrong if you do not understand that there is life after death and that if you die in covenant with God, you're really not dead. And you're not even mostly dead. Remember that from the (laughs) the movie? Mostly dead. You're not even mostly dead. You're not dead at all. He says, look, Jesus says, and he knows personally. He knows this. By experience, he knows it. That's why in Hebrews 12 it says that He looked past the cross and ignored the shame, looking for the glory, looking past it to the joy that was before him. He knows what's on the other side. And these people that deny what's on the other side and deny God and deny the realities, even religious, even religious people who do this, he says, you are quite wrong. These people are not dead. If you've lost a loved one in Christ, they're not dead. (laughs) They're alive. I am the God of the living. That's why I do this, the Lord says. This is why the gospel is true. You've got to grasp this. The promises and the life of God go past this life, past this life. Um, we could just close in prayer right now, but dream on. That's not happening. Because um, turn to Genesis 23, which is the, the funeral for Sarah. Abraham's beloved Sarah. And she is beloved, was beloved, is beloved. She's not dead either. We're going to read the whole chapter, and I will explain a little bit of what's going on. The death of Sarah prompts two things in Abraham's life. Now, remember, we're in the Abraham narratives of the book of Genesis. And this is a passage a lot of people just cruise right over. They don't pay hardly any of attention to it, any attention to it, um, uh, because it doesn't seem interesting to people. They, 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 they go for... In fact... <laughs> I was talking with Travis last week, and he got to preach chapter 22, which is this amazing, dramatic moment, you know, putting Isaac on the altar. It's just a marvelous, marvelous passage. It teaches itself practically. And and I get to teach about a funeral. But you know what? I don't mind. I'll tell you why. I love the passages that we overlook. I really do. The passages we think don't have meaning, but God put in his word... And so they must have meaning. And there's a lot for us to think about in this passage. Sarah's, beloved Sarah's funeral. So uh, the two things, I'll tell you, there's basically a two-point uh, outline of the passage itself. The first is um, Abraham's genuine grief, his genuine grief. And secondly, his faithful purchase, and they go together. He grieves, and then he purchases some property, and this becomes really important in the Abraham narrative and in the fulfillment of God's promises through Abraham. It's kind of amazing. Let's begin in chapter 23 of Genesis, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. Those were the years of the life of Sarah. Um, friend, if the Lord tarries, there will be a place where it will have your name and two dates, and a dash between those two dates. God knows the number of days we have. Sarah lived 127 years. We we sitting here do not know what that second date is. But if we do not realize that there is a second date, we will not live wisely. And one of the reasons, and you'll see this chapter and the following chapters, the deaths of these people are recorded, is to give us that sense of foundation in our souls. Oh, that's right. There's a beginning and an ending of this tangible, this particular life. It's not the end of life, but life here is temporary. She lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah's life. And by the way... um, She's the only woman in the Bible whose, whose dates are given. Uh, men's dates are given, mainly so that you can see the chronologies. They he, they recorded the men's dates. But Sarah is so important because she's the matriarch. She, and she's honored so greatly. She's honored greatly here because he buys this piece of property specifically so she can be buried in Canaan. And we'll see that. Um, and so she's so important that her dates are put in there. These are the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, uh, which later became known as Hebron. Hebron is still there, and the place we're going to read about is still there, Machpelah, and everything. Everything that takes place here, you can go to Israel and you can see it, uh, or portions of it. There's a mosque, unfortunately, over this cave, but Hebron, uh, the name Kiriath Arba became Hebron later, and so the author puts that in here. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Hebron is down not far from Beersheba in the southern part of, uh, of Israel, just on the edge of the desert. If you look out, you can see the desert from there, between there and Egypt. In the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her and these two words are really important it's the only passage in the Abraham narrative where Abraham weeps and uh, you know it's interesting there's other places where it could have recorded that but it doesn't and the word for weep really means to weep and the word for mourn means to cry out loudly to God weeping and mourning. This is Abraham at this, at this moment. And she passed three years before her son got married. So she didn't get to see Isaac marry Rebecca. Abraham lived another 38 years after this. He remarried, actually. We'll read about it next week. But this is the end of an era. It's the end of an era. You got to feel the grief. You say, well, I don't want to feel grief. I don't want to talk about grief. I, want, I don't want to remember about dying. But that's one of the reasons we're here this morning. We need to look into this. And I do want you to sense the grief. And some of you have lost loved ones, maybe recently. If not recently, in the past, you've lost loved ones. And you feel that sense of grief. And we tend to think this grief should not happen. And I want to get over it as fast as I can. In fact, some Christians well-meaning but mistaken, they do not actually endure the grief long enough. They don't embrace it and they don't let it happen. And they try to say, well, I'm being faithful, I'm not going to grieve. Let me suggest to you that grief is an extremely important thing. And processing through it and trusting God through it. That's why we have Grief Share here. And anybody who works with the fallenness of this world knows that grief is an important thing. You don't deny it. You don't pretend it's not there. That'll make you crazy. Abraham grieved. He wept for how long we don't know. But remember, he didn't own any property in the promised land, which means he didn't have a right to bury someone. They buried them in sepulchers. He didn't own a sepulcher and he had no place to bury her. So he's Weeping and grieving, it says he went in and wept, that means that she was lying in state for a little while, a day or two, and he went in and he's weeping for his beloved wife. Faithful grief, faithful grief, please understand how valuable it is, and even in the long run can be healing, faithful grief. Then he gets up, and the next the next section, the rest of the chapter, is a faithful purchase. And he needs to now purchase a place for her to be buried. Abraham rose from before his dead, interesting way to put it, and said to the Hittites... Now, there's a different group of Hittites than you read about later in history. That term, Hittite, is used in different contexts in this part of the country and that part of that era... But these were the people who actually owned the land. Now remember, he was a sojourner. In fact, he reminds, he's reminded of it. He, he didn't own the land. He didn't own the property. He lived there. He was a real important guy. But the Hittites owned the land and he knew it. And he had an agreement with them that he could be there. Abraham rose from his dead and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. We've talked about this. People who live by faith understand that in this age we are sojourners and really foreigners, expats. We have a home. It is the new creation, not this one. It's the promised land. We don't own anything here, per se. I mean... We own things in a sense, but the long-term thing is that we're sojourners and foreigners, and that's one of the main things that we learn in the book of Hebrews about who we are when he quotes this. So so he is reminded of this, and he, he gets together with the leaders of the Hittite community, and he says, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And it doesn't, it's not a bad thing, it's just that he doesn't mean this, I want her out of my sight. You know, it's not like that. Um, is it too gross for me to talk about the process of decomposition? Um, out of his sight means I need a cave in which decomposition can take place. And, and they all knew this. And um, they still, to this day, you can go to Israel and see the caves. Um, you know, there are sepulchers. And you can go into them and you can see how they laid the bodies and they let them de- decompose completely over a long period of time. Then they would go in after months or years because uh, they weren't embalmed. They, they didn't do that. The Egyptians did that, but the Jews didn't. And uh, they would let them completely decompose and then they would put them in what is known as an ossuary, which is a bone box. That's what it, what it means. It's about this wide or long about this wide, and about this tall, and it's a ceramic box, and they would take the bones, which was all always left, and it was the length of a femur, just a little longer than a femur, and they'd put all the bones in there, and then they would put that on a little shelf, and then the next person in the family that died, they would do the same thing, and so it became extremely important to have a place to do that, now, under normal circumstances, because they understood their history very deeply and they valued it, they would go back to their ancestral homes to do this. And a sojourner would say, we're going to make the trek, in this case, it would be, we're going to make the trek back up to Padanaram, and we will have her buried up there. And he doesn't do that. That's unique, and it's important, and it's one of the reasons the story is here. Let's move on. He says, will you please let me bury Sarah here? And the Hittites, they said, hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God. That's the literal Hebrew. Some of your translations say um, a mighty man or a mighty prince or whatever. The literal is a prince of God among us. And it's been said before that they understood that he belonged to God. They understood this. They didn't have very much theology, the Hittites, but they understood that God... Well, first of all, they, they believed there is a God, and secondly, they believed Abraham had something to do with him because of his history. And uh, But they're really honoring him. What they're saying is, you're an important guy here among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your, your dead. Now, Abraham rose. Now, notice, he says... What they're saying is, take, find one. There's lots of caves, uh, we, and we use them as tombs, and we'll definitely let you have one. Abraham rose, bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead, thank you for that, out of my sight, yes, okay, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. So I already know what I want to do, says Abraham. Get Ephron for me. And that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. Abraham had a plan. He already knew the cave he wanted. And there's a field in front of it as well. So it's a piece of property Uh, that he owns. It is the end. It's at the end of his field for the full price. Now, they said, we'll give it to you. He says, I'm not going to let you give it to me. I want to buy it for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, he's, this is taking place in the gates of, uh, of Kiriath Arba. And that's the courthouse. The gates are like the courthouse. And so he's, he says, no, 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 no. I want to buy it and I want it to, a piece of paper that says I actually own it. This is the only part of the, quote, promised land that he ever owned. Um, by the way... Do you know how much property you're going to own? Just a few feet. Anyway, he says, I want to own it. I'm a a sojourner here. I'm not going to let you give it to me. One of the reasons was it could be contested in the generations to come if they didn't have, quote, unquote, a piece of paper. They didn't use paper like we do. But uh, he He says, I want it recorded legally. That I own this thing. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham Abraham, in the hearing of the Hittites. Now this is all very legal, and it's interesting because uh, there's quite a bit of text in the Bible here about this just this deal that is made, and they're going to dicker. You'll see, they're going to dicker about this very politely, but they're going to dicker, and and Ephron's there. He said, no, Lord, no, my Lord. He doesn't mean God, Lord. He means sir, no, sir. Hear me, look. Verse 11, I'm going to give you the field. I will give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. It's okay. You know, I don't want... Go ahead and I'm just giving it to you. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. There's a lot of bowing going on here. And this is actually an important part of the process. They're very respectful to each other, almost exaggeratedly so. Uh, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of all the people, again, very legal. This is the court. This is the gates. This is the courts. Everybody's hearing it and they will be able to bear witness later. Yes, this is what happened. Very important that this be the case. They're all hearing it. Um, hearing, uh, within the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will, hear me, says Abraham. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. He says, I'm not going to let you give it to me. I want to buy it. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Go ahead and bury your dead. You see what he's doing? That's the price. And by the way, it's not cheap. It is not a deal for Abraham. He's not getting a good deal. It's quite a bit of money in those days. So you see what's happening? Abraham says, I need to, can I bury my dead? They said, yes, by all means. Very polite. Not exactly the whole story. Abraham says, no, I want to pay for it. Ephron says hey you know it's only worth 400 shekels which is a ton of money now that's he's expecting to bargain Abraham doesn't bargain he just says i'll pay the price um, he said abraham listen to ephron verse 16 16 and abraham weighed out for ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight's current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, very important places, all of these, um, in Abraham's life. The field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who were at the city gates. By the way, they counted the trees. Trees were assets. In in the Northwest here where we live, trees are often assets too. Um, If you buy land and it has marketable timber, they count it as part of the value of the land. In the ancient world, it wasn't simply marketable timber. might have been that. But trees were considered assets, so that's why it says that. And notice this is a legal transaction. Um, so after this, uh, verse nineteen, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of uh, the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Very legal. And by the way, um, Abraham is buried here as well. Um, Isaac and Rebecca are buried there. Jacob and Leah are buried there. This becomes the family plot for uh, the family of Abraham. And it's still there to this day, but like I said, there's a mosque over it, a Muslim mosque. Um, What's the deal here? You're saying, he's done. Pray on. Let me ask a couple questions. Why this, why is this here? Why, aside from touching on the grief, which we're going to talk, touch on here in just a minute again, but why this account? We're, we're, you know, when we read the Bible, this is a chapter we skip. And we think to ourselves, why did the Lord put this in here? Let me offer two important reasons for it. First is to show that Abraham's new identity was in the promised land. Now, let that soak in. It is super important that he said, I want this land in my name. Even though it's promised and it will be a gift to Israel someday, he is saying, I want everybody to know I'm not going back to my ancestral land. Remember when God called Abraham, he said, come out of your previous life and come into the promised land. Abraham is saying, this is now my identity. And I am, I, I don't want it to be simply, I don't want anyone to contest it later. I want it all to be known right up front. This is my new identity. And he knows in his heart, this will eventually be the land that my, my whole family will have. He knows this because God said it. So the first thing is to show Abraham's new identity was in the promised land. Uh, Because normally a sojourner would not own any land and would go back to their family of origin or their home of origin in order to bury anybody. And he says, no, this is now my place of origin. What's your place of origin? Hebrews 11 picks up on this. We've quoted it several times. I'm not going to have you turn there today. But in Hebrews 11, it says, at the end of chapter 11, it says, all these people died without actually receiving the full promise, but they died in faith. And what they were saying, and it says, there's this whole list of people who trusted the word of God. They trusted the word of God, and some of them were actually tortured to death. Many of them died what we call natural deaths, but they died in faith. And they said, my destiny is now tied to the promise of God. This is my actual identity. I'm, I came out of that other world. I came into a new identity. This is where I belong. That's what Abraham is saying. You know, when you come out of darkness and into light, when you come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come out of the world and into Christ, and by the way, there's a baptism today, and you're going to see a few people coming out of the world and into Christ. This is the new identity. Is that true, really and truly? Or do we find our identity here in this world? And is that why we worry about this world so much? And we make, and we become so enamored of it and so frustrated with it that we forget, you know, we have a different identity. One of the reasons this account is here is to show that Abraham saw himself as belonging in this land. Um, meaning the future of this land, meaning the promise of God. And that brings us to the second major reason, and that is to show that Abraham's faith was grounded in the promise. Um, he had seen, now we've traced Abraham, the growth of Abraham's faith. You know, God said, leave your country and, and come out here to the, quote, promised land. I'm going to eventually give it to you. It was a deed of faith for him to leave. He came and he lived there. That's a deed of faith. And then as time went by and the Lord confirmed it, even though it took 25 years before a child was born to him, at every point along the line his faith was being stretched. And at every point along the line the Lord was saying, if you'll trust me, if you'll do what I say... And Abraham, at every point along the line, said, yes, I will do that. Even though it was difficult, even though it was hard, even though he and Sarah had a bit of an argument on more than one occasion about how this thing was going to happen, the difficulties were there. But every point along the line, Abraham said, I trust your promises just as if I was standing on a rock that is your promise. I trust you completely. That's how it ended up. And that's why last week in Travis's message, excellent message, um, he points out that the ultimate test was my whole destiny, which is Isaac, all the promises of God, and my whole heart, it's all here. I've put it all on the altar. His faith has been stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched to almost the breaking point. And at every point along the line, the Lord said, you can trust me. And Abraham said, "Okay." Because we live by faith and not by sight, which means we live by faith in what God says, not by the strength of our feelings. In our culture, Sight very often is understood as how you feel. And in our culture, we are told that how we feel, that's reality. And sometimes God says, no, it's not. We feel grief. Is that the ultimate reality? No. It's important for us to experience it, but the ultimate reality is the resurrection. We feel fear. Is that the ultimate reality? No. Ultimately, the Lord says, don't be anxious. He's, this is one of his main <laughs> in the Sermon on the Mount. So we can't go by our feelings. We can when we say uh, when we say uh, we live by faith and not by sight. What we mean, what he means, is not simply physical sight. He means all the perceptions that we can acquire without his word. Is this too? Am I getting too deep on this thing for you? Are you guys? Connecting with what I'm saying. When Abraham makes this decision to buy this land and make sure that everyone knows that he buys it, what he's really saying is, I trust my entire destiny to the promise of God. Exactly like he did with Isaac in the previous chapter. And so in a sense, burying Sarah here is a foregone conclusion. It's not so much a test of his faith, it's simply a demonstration. His faith was tested in chapter 22. In previous chapters. And he, at every point along the line, trusted God. Get circumcised. He trusted God. Move, the, move to the land. He trusted God. Wait until I give you a son. He trusted God. Offer the son. He trusted God. Now, it's a foregone conclusion. Having trusted God that much, is he going to continue trusting God? Absolutely. And that's why this is here. That's why it's important that he bought this land. Because it shows that his faith, the fruit of his faith was... I'm still living on the promises of God. And the days are gone when I would ever even think of going back to my old way. I live on the promises of God. And this is actually uh, born out again in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And if you haven't read Hebrews 11 recently, um, do, just, just decide you're going to read Hebrews. Not now, some of you. After church. But um, this is the point of Hebrews 11. And um, to die, it's not so much that he buried Sarah in Canaan. It's that he buried her in faith by burying her in Canaan. He lived on the promise. And so do you. Paul brings this out in Romans 4. When he says, it, really, the security of your salvation needs to not be based on you. It has to be based on God's promise. And he uses Abraham as the illustration of it, based on the promise of God. Can you, Are you comfortable, are we comfortable living on promises? Do we take a promise from God? If it's really God's promise, his word, and I don't mean just sometimes the lord will promise something to a to a human that they sense in their heart and it's an intuitive thing and i you know as christians we feel this at times but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about something that is clearly in the word of god a promise concerning eternal life a promise concerning life after death a promise concerning the the new heavens and the new earth Do we see that as just as important as the property documents that we have in our files or on our computers that tell us that we own certain pieces of property? Do we see those as equally reliable and put our weight down on those promises? Because that's what we are challenged to do in our faith as Christians. Live in the promise. She was buried in Canaan, but she was buried in faith. Now I want to spend some time, our last few minutes together here, um, talking about death. <laughs> You're going, I don't want to talk about death, <laughs> but we need to. Do you know how much the Bible talks about it? All the time, it's in there. And do you know how much people think about it? People think about it all the time. The older they get, the more they think about it. You know the only people who don't think about death are young, healthy, tan, rich. And how long does any of that last? <laughs> you know, people who, who don't number their days to have the wisdom, if they don't think about death, they don't think wisely. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about faithful death. And we're going to warm up your Bible-turning fingers because I'm going to take you to some passages. And I'm going to mention um, five things about it. Closing thoughts here about death itself. Number one. It sobers us up in this life. Death itself sobers us in this life. Look at Ecclesiastes. If you're in Genesis, move your Bible forward. Psalms. By the way, Psalms is right in the middle of most Bibles, unless it's a big, thick study Bible with a lot of notes at the end. Normally, if it's just a text Bible, Psalms are pretty much right in the middle of it. So go to Psalms, then Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes, in the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, traditionally understood to have been written by Solomon. And um, it's the one that starts out, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And uh, it talks about life under the sun. It talks about life as human beings in a fallen world. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Chapter 7. Under the topic, death sobers us. Death sobers us. Here you have Abraham, and we've seen some of the parties that he's had, and they were wonderful. Some of the good things that have taken place in his life, but here you have the great leveler of all humans, and that is sorrow and grief at the loss in death. And death has the effect of actually keeping our feet on the ground and sobering our minds. Chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment was extremely valuable in the ancient world. It was literally liquid assets. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. What? Oh, by the way, this is all this is all poetry, which means you're supposed to feel your way through the words. You're, poetry is there so that you will feel your way through. It gives us facts. There are some facts here. But we're supposed to feel this. But wait a second. The, the day of one's death better than the day of one's birth? Well, because between the birth and the death, you can still make some very bad decisions. But not after the death. There's a, there's a finality to it. And he said, that's actually a good thing. And the point is, it gives us stability and sobriety when we realize there's just these two dates on that on that stone in the in the memorial park. He goes on. It is better to go to, go to the house of mourning than to the go than to go to the house of feasting, partying. What? No, I- I I don't see why he would say that. It is better to go to, better to walk through a graveyard than to go to a nightclub? Actually, you want wisdom? You want real wisdom? See where he's going with this? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by, and this word sadness, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. It's, it is, this is really a very deep way to look at it. But the point he's making is, and the word sad for face means a sober face, a face that's serious about what's going on, um, can make the heart glad. What? I thought the heart could only be glad if I'm laughing my head off. Uh, Not necessarily. You can be laughing your head off in one way and have a completely broken heart in another way. And you can have a very serious look on your face because you're thinking about serious things and know deep down inside there's some real goodness that God is doing. And it is the experience of the sorrow and the grief that puts you in touch with the deeper realities. Which is why oftentimes at funerals, not always, I've done many funerals, it's not always this way, but very often there are reconciliations between people who previously were upset with one another and they come to a funeral of a friend or a family member. Because it's the great leveler, see. To have a serious look on your face about something that, that is as serious as death itself can actually breathe a new kind A deeper kind of joy on the inside of the heart. I suspect you have to have some life experience before this makes real sense. That's true for a lot of what's in Ecclesiastes. Remember, the topic here is that death sobers us. It sobers us up. It keeps our feet on the ground. It makes us realize what's real. And um, so he says... Sorrow, in a way, is better than laughter. And we just flat don't believe that. And there's a time for laughter. You see that in Ecclesiastes as well. There's a time for laughter. There's a time for enjoyment and enjoyment of this life. But if there's never any sorrow, then the enjoyment becomes completely shallow. Completely shallow. If there's never any sorrow. In a fallen world. It sobers us. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. You never, you have to remember um, where you're going. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Meaning, once again, better to be serious than basically uh, shallow with regard to life. Again, the Bible endorses happiness. In its proper context, it endorses joyfulness and it, endor- it, it endorses the goodness of life and enjoying what is good about life, even in a fallen world. Don't get me wrong. But if you take away the concept of mourning and you insist that you will never grieve and you have no category for the for sorrow, then your life will be shallow. And when the Lord allows those things to come into our lives and there's deep grief and there's deep sorrow, what it does is it deepens our prayer life, it deepens our sense of commitment to the Lord. And in the long run, it has a huge benefit to us. Which is why... uh, And I've talked to my friends in ministry here. uh, Pastors, we talk about these kinds of things sometimes. And my good friend, uh, Matt McAuliffe, he and I are the angels of death these days. We're doing a lot of memorial services. He does music and and I preach and we we see each other. And when we see each other, because we're both about the same age, and um, we talk about how many of our friends have graduated and how good it is to do a memorial service and how it's better to do a memorial service than a wedding. Now, I don't mean that weddings aren't good. Weddings are good. The Bible says they're good. You should enjoy a wedding. You should be glad for a wedding. Um, However, a wedding is the beginning of a marriage. And a marriage is not a party. (laughs) Do You understand that, right? Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll back in the day, he said, what's this at the end of the story? I'd say... They got married and lived happily ever after. He said, what is that about? He said, what do you mean happily ever after? They got married. We joke about it because it's a one, a wedding is a good thing. Jesus made wine at the wedding. By the way, he didn't officiate the wedding. He made the wine. Okay, that's another discussion. The wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation is the, is this beautiful marvelous joyful moment where god is with his people and he, He's just the picture of a wedding so i'm not down on weddings weddings are good but look at what's being said here i actually i will never turn down a memorial service unless i i literally can't do it but i stopped doing weddings about 30 years ago except for family and very close friends cuz in the bible these types of things are important. And I, weddings are wonderful. I've done hundreds of them. Um, but I stopped doing them for everybody else many years ago. And the reason is because in pastoral work, you have to be able to deal with grief. And you deal with it all the time. All the time. And... Um, The pastoral job description does not include doing weddings. There's nothing about doing weddings in the Bible. In fact, there's no wedding described in the Bible other than the one Jesus made the wine at, and it didn't tell us even there how the wedding was done. On the other hand, there's tons about death in the Bible. And there's a huge importance of being able to deal with grief. So point number one about this is that death actually sobers us. It reminds us, and part of the sobriety, by the way, is that it reminds us that sin is real. Have you ever thought about that? The existence of death reminds us that sin is real. Romans chapter 5, don't turn, but Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, explains why death is here. You see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, from dust you were taken, to dust you shall return. death It sobers us because it reminds us there is such a thing as sin, There is such a thing as sin. And this keeps us anchored into reality. And the world says, no, it doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. There is no judgment. None of that matters. Party on. And God says, that's insanity. Death keeps our feet on the ground. To that extent, it is a benefit for us to remember it on a regular basis. Furthermore... It reminds us that because sin is real, that's why we die, we should repent of it in this life. Because if we don't repent of it and come to him and let him forgive us of our sins, there is a second death. Revelation chapter 20 mentions it twice. A second death. That's what hell is, the second death. People ask me, is there life after death? Of course there's life after death. Of course, it's been believed by generations all through history. It is believed by most people on the earth today. There is life after death. The question is not, is there life after death? The question is, is there death after life? Is there another death? And the answer is very clear. It is. There is. It's called the second death. Death keeps us, it it keeps our feet on the ground. It reminds us about the importance of grief. It reminds us about how shallow life would be if all we did was party. It reminds us of the importance of sin and how the Lord came to deliver us from it. And it reminds us of the importance of repenting of sin now and coming to Christ now. And if you're hearing this, maybe for the first time, there's a baptism after this service today. You can believe in Jesus you can be baptized today, and you cannot be afraid of death again because of it. Because that second death, that's real. There is a real second death. Heavy. Is this too heavy of a sermon? Um, Here's point number one. It sobers us. These are thoughts on death. It sobers us about this life. Point number two, it makes us look beyond this life. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It makes us look beyond this life. Death is what makes people think about God. If it weren't for death, we would live in a perpetual state of alienation from God and trying not to think about Him. And the term for that, 2 Corinthians you're going to, chapter 4, the term for an eternal life away from God is hell. That's the term for that. So what death does is it makes us look past this life, and we have got to look past this life. Now, if you've ever been to a memorial service I've done, you've heard these verses because I, I preach these, and some of you have been to many of the memorial services. So hang in there. Look at what the Apostle Paul is saying. Verse 14, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, breaking into the middle of a sentence, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you, he says to his friends at Corinth into his presence. Skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. There's this life on the inside, even though the bodies are wearing out. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It can't be compared to this life. It's infinitely better. And he said, this This trauma we live in right now, this is preparing us for that. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are not seen are eternal. In Hebrews 11, Moses, it says, Endured as one who sees him who is invisible. It says that about Moses. Moses endured everything he endured. Because he saw him who is invisible. What in the world is that? It means you listen to what God says and you let your imagination be used for what it was created for. And that is to put God's word into your heart and you say, I am going to see the Lord and I am going to see the goodness. I don't see it now, but I live by faith and not by sight. He says, we know, chapter 5, we know that if this tent, this physical body we have here, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building, different word than tent, we have a building from God. A house, different word yet, it means permanence, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our new heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we will not be found naked. It means that when you die, you have a tangible uh, aspect to you. You don't become just a ghost. You don't become just a spirit. Um, And then he says, so that, skip down to the end of verse 4, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This is why, this is what he's doing. He's preparing you for your memorial service. He has prepared us for this very thing as God, and he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We don't let death depress us. We are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. See, there's our verse. Yes, we are of good courage. Don't get the impression that when you hear about death among Christians, it's the purpose is depressing people. Paul says, no, no, it's not that way. He says, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So many people I talk to as a pastor. And they say, Christians, Christian people, why does the Lord still have me here? I'd rather be away from my body and with the Lord, away from this body. It's wonderful. (laughs) It's wonderful. And then uh, verse 9, so that whether we are at home or away, we will make it. Now, look at what he's saying. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. We make it our aim to please him. Not We don't make it our aim to be happy in this world, to do everything this world says we should do, or everything our old nature says. To please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. People worry about this. The older you are, the more you worry about it. Old people sin just as much. They just look... They're not... They look holy. They just are tired. That's all. That's the only difference. And the older you get, the more regrets you have, and the more you rely on the grace of God because you know how many things you've done and said wrong. And so they worry about this. What I'll just briefly explain, your salvation isn't based on this. This is a reward that you get for being faithful to the Lord. And so when he says, I'm going to evaluate your life, what he's going to say is, these are all the things you were forgiven of. Aren't you glad? And you're going to say, praise God. And he's going to say, these are the good decisions you made, even when it was sacrificial. And for these things, I am going to reward you. That's, what's ha- that's what he's talking about here. But look at the issue of death and life after death. Look at the hope that he has here. Look what he's saying about this tangible reality. Death makes us look beyond this life. And we don't want to. That's why sometimes in memorial services, I've had people walk out. They come because they want to honor the person who passed away. But as soon as I stand up to open the word of God, I've had people walk out. Because they don't want to be confronted with the reality of life after death. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about God. But death makes us look beyond this life. And it is a good thing. It is a good thing to look beyond this life. Third, it encourages us to invest this life. Death makes us say, how do I want to invest my life? Because I am not going to be here that much longer. Even if you're young, you're not going to be here that much longer. Uh, Trust me. The older you get, the more you realize that. It goes so fast. And compared to eternity, this short period of time, death makes us say, how can I invest my life? How can I make decisions that will honor and glorify God? If I belong to the Lord, I've come to the Lord. How can I make decisions that will honor and glorify God? See, that's those last two verses we just looked at there in 2 Corinthians 5. Death makes us say, how can I invest my life? How can I not waste my life simply living in world thinking? Fourth, it reminds us to release our life completely to the Lord. I'll just quote this one because we're almost totally out of time. But uh, it's in Colossians, jot it down. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. I'll just quote it to you. It says, You have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So keep your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. The point being, it reminds us to release our life to the Lord. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right now, death has already happened. That's why when you get baptized, that's your death right there. You're being joined into the death of Christ. People say, are you going to die? I already did that. Been there, done that, got wet. Seriously, uh, you know, we joke, we might say it in a funny way, but that's exactly what's happening. Which is why you should get baptized, if you are a Christian and have not been baptized. You should do it today. See, because death for a Christian, you've already been there. You've already done it. You're in Christ. Am I more excited about this than you guys? I, 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 I am so amazed by this reality, and I want to get it across to you. Once you come into Christ, you die. And you come back to life. So that all your death becomes is graduation. That's why we call it graduation. As Christians, we call it death graduation. It's something you look forward to. It reminds us to release our life to the Lord. Let me give you those things again. First of all, it sobers us up about real life and about sin and about repentance and all these things. It keeps our feet on the ground. Secondly, it makes us look beyond this life, which we have got to do. We've got to look past this life. Third, it encourages us to invest this life in something eternal. Fourth, it reminds us to release this life completely to the Lord because you have died and your life is already hidden with Christ in God. So keep your mind in that and don't be enamored of the world here. Why? Well, because, and here's the final point, it has been defeated, of course, by the Lord. You knew I was going to say that, right? The reason any of this is true, the reason Christians can talk about death and practice it when they take communion, by the way, They're practicing remembering death whenever they take communion. The reason is because the Lord defeated it. If you don't know this verse, turn to it. If you know it by heart, you don't have to. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. The apostle John, the last living apostle, all of his friends had died. The older you get, the more of your friends have already graduated. And... uh, all of John's friends. All the people he suffered with. And he had seen some of them killed. Seen his friends killed for being Christians. He was the last one alive. He writes the book of the Revelation. It's in chapter 1 here. He sees a vision of Christ. He's a really old guy. He's in his mid-90s probably. And um, uh, he sees this vision of Christ. And he probably thinks he's dying. Because he sees this vision of Christ. He probably thinks I'm dying. So it says he says... I fell over as a dead man, and the Lord put his hand on me. Um, You'll see it there in verse 17. I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. He's probably thinking, finally. (laughs) This is great. And the Lord is saying, no, not quite yet. I got some stuff you got to write. But you can read that in the Revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, But he laid his hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Underline it, and I have the keys of death in Hades. That is the best news the world has ever heard. A person who lived, died, lives eternally has the keys to death and to Hades. This is the person you want to know. This is the person who comes to you and says, just repent, just trust me. I will forgive you and you do not have to fear death ever again. Once you've come to me, I have the keys of death and Hades. What an amazing thing. You know, our lives have hard times in them. There's no such thing as an easy life. Um, all of our lives as adults, the longer you live, the more you realize that you have to bless the name of the Lord through all of the grief and all the sorrow. And when you do, when you say, I only want to serve God, I only want to honor God, no matter what it costs me, I want to do what he wants, and I'm going to trust his promises above all things. That... Way of living is expressed when we pray and when we sing and when we offer our lives to Him. Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what life brings to us. Let's take a moment and uh, let's stand and pray and we're going to sing. We're going to sing that actually. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking us to a funeral today, Sarah's. Thank you for the promise that we see, Abraham trusting your promise. So much that he puts his money where his faith is, and he purchases this land, and he says, this is my new destiny. Thank you for reminding us of that, Lord. And thank you for reminding us of the importance of grief and the importance of understanding how life is temporary here. And we pray that uh, far from being uh, depressing, this will actually enliven us, strengthen us. I pray for those who are going to be baptized here in this next half hour, an hour. And I pray that you would fill their hearts with hope and certainty as they enter the waters of baptism. We thank you, Father, for all these things. You are so good to us, so much better than we deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.